Thank you for joining us as we elevate the Black entrepreneur experience by interviewing CEOs, thought leaders, innovative thinkers, and Black entrepreneurs across the globe. I'm your host, Dr. Francis Richards. Our next guest, the authors of Our Problem, Our Path, a must-read book about racism written by Dr. Eleonora Bartola and Dr. Ali Michaels. Welcome. Thanks, Dr. Richards. It's so good to be here with you and your listeners. So I've nice given. To be here. Thank you. And you know what? I'm going to. I'm going to slow it down because I. I'm so used to one guest, and I've had two. So I'm going to make sure you both have time to talk. Mm. So I've given our audience such a brief bio. Why don't you fill in the gaps and share with our audience what you want them to know about you and your book? Well, Dr. Richards, my name's Allie Michael, and I am the co-director and co-founder of the Race Institute for K-12 Educators. I, I have, my formal study is around whiteness and racism. I have a doctorate in teacher education. But I, what I realized when I was in grad school was that we, we know a lot about racism and education, and we often don't make it possible for that information to uh, come alive in classrooms. And so I, the, I founded the Race Institute for K-12 Educators with colleagues in order to um, make the research on race and education more accessible to teachers. And as part of that work, I've also co-edited, been a part of a, a multiracial editorial team to co-edit the Guide for White Women Who Teach Black Boys and a book called Teaching Beautiful and Brilliant Black Girls. And um, just generally trying to build bridges for educators, 84% of educators are white, um, and the, the children they teach and those children's families to better understand that race actually impacts our classrooms in incredibly significant ways. But so many white people were socialized to not see it, to not talk about it, to not strategize in ways that could be supportive to their students. So that's my full-time work. And, and I really, you know, I try to stay focused on whiteness and try to stay focused on helping to model for white people what it looks like to be um, thoughtful and humble and in seek of my own biases um, as I think about racism. Because um, as a white person, I share some of the, a lot of the socialization that many, many white teachers have. And I'm Eleonora Bartoli, and my path is a bit different from Ali, but we've been intersecting for almost 10 to 20 years and collaborating. I'm a psychologist and consultant now. I spent 15 years in academia as a director, 12 of which is the director of the um, counseling program, master's program at Arcadia University, uh, which was really where I learned um, a great deal about and taught and researched about how to integrate social justice and multicultural print, uh, principles in the counseling process. So I come from a viewpoint that is more internal than external in some senses. And three years ago, I decided I really wanted to share the tools of counseling and psychology in the service of folks on the front line of social justice work to foster both resilience building and to also facilitate what sometimes is a really fraught space of conversations around racism or fraught space around conversation about justice. And I think counseling and psychology has, has a ton to offer. And sometimes we stay in our ivory tower and not end up being all that useful uh, and just talking to each other. So I stepped out three, uh, three years ago and then Ali invited me in this beautiful collaboration 
um, to sort of write about our thoughts about how to put together in a, uh, the external work with the internal work. This is really interesting, um, even with everything going on with um, the murder of George Floyd, how is your work really being received? I find that uh, we have a very different approach to anti-racism than I think is kind of out there right now. And so I actually started some groups for white people who wanted to do more learning with other white people about anti-racism right after George Floyd was murdered. Um, I found that was the thing I could do. Um, and I, my goal was to support white people to have effective groups that are not just a, another book group, but that are really transformative and that focus on racial competency building, which means they're not just thinking about knowledge, but they're also fostering self-awareness, um, skills, and action for both recognizing racism and taking and, and intervening with it. And um, I find that, you know, for white people, um, part of racial privilege means that you don't have to, your survival doesn't depend on continuing to talk about and think about racism or to kind of challenge racism. And, um, at least not your material survival. Um, some people would say our spiritual survival really does depend on it. Um, but pe white people have the choice to opt out. And so I think after George Floyd was murdered, there was some real outrage and real desire to form multiracial coalitions um, that, that kind of declared, this is not okay. Black lives matter, and we're not going to let our government continue to kill our fellow citizens. And then I think there was like a lot of burnout. <laughs> there was a lot of burnout. And part of it is the overwhelm of not being able to change the system immediately. And because I think if you're white, you often feel like you have a whole lot of agency. Like things tend to, you know, like change when I think they should change because I can like make things, you know, I have a lot of power that I might not even see in our society. So I, I start to see racism. I'm like, what is this? I have, I, this, this is not okay. I'm going to stop this. And what, what happens is we come up against white supremacy, which is a system that black Americans know full well and been able to recognize for generations and know that just because you think it's wrong doesn't mean it's going to change. It's going to take a lot more than that. And what Eleanor and I were seeing is white people kind of get burning out getting paralyzed, starting to feel bad about themselves and saying like, okay, I'm out. I don't want to do this or really competing with one another to show that they are anti-racist. It was more about kind of uh, unconsciously, I think this desire to promote a, a, an anti-racist self image over the desire to, pro to dismantle systemic racism. And so we want to support white people. We want to change the way this is anti-racism is talked about. I think for a lot of white people right now in 2022, um, it can, and people feel a little nauseous and queasy when they hear the word anti-racism. I'm like, oh, I don't want to touch that. No, there's going to be a lot of self-righteous white people and or a lot of viciousness. The bar is very high for entry. I don't, you know, I don't belong there. And we want to say, no, first of all, this is a love movement. This is a love movement that is going to require everybody. If we're going to be successful in shifting our systems, we need hundreds of millions of white people to commit to this over multiple generations. And we need to not just commit to it like 
one time when something really overtly racist happens in the streets of Minneapolis, but we need to commit to it like on a daily basis in our own lives, in our own spheres of influence, because each of us has some power. And so maybe I can't change the system, but I can look around at my sphere of influence where I have power and I can look at the ways in which I, I um, am either engaging with that power in ways that perpetuate the, a racial hierarchy or ways that challenge and dismantle it. And I really, truly remember that 2020 summer, um, really how I remember 9-11 almost. This was such an uh, intense time. And I remember um, after the murder of George Floyd, I was just, he was still sort of under quarantine and I was walking a neighborhood and I was so agitated by a message that came through my professional listserv. It was a white woman that sort of asked, well, what can we do as white people? And of course, even though I um, asked myself that question many times, I went into total fight mode. I said, how can you ask that question? How is it possible after all this year that we still don't know uh, what to do about this when there's so many articles, so many books, the 75 things what people can do to fight racism. And every time I reopen that article, now it's 105, 120. But I realized that just like I had done many times before, we freeze, we feel like the task is so daunting and then we can never overcome it. And we can't really fight it anymore because we are so overwhelmed by the pain and we're in such empathetic connection with uh, the folks who are really on the receiving end of racism and we're feeling so uh, discouraged that we freeze. And so I, I was walking a neighborhood and writing, writing, writing. Every two steps I was stopping and writing on my phone and then that became a blog um, this title, Open Letter to White People. But this really was part of the conversation with Ali at the time of holding each other and say, how can we invite white people in who want to be in? And they're really um, cold and feel deeply uh, engaged in the movement. And yet they keep stopping uh, at, at asking a question in the really significant of our freeze response. And we felt the narrative out there often is, what's wrong with you, white people? Why are you all bystanders? You don't have a heart? What's going on with you? And bringing a trauma-informed lens really switches the topic, switches the, the narrative to what happened to you. It's not by chance that collectively white people have been, for the most part, bystanders. This is not a chance. It's not a genetic uh, determined outcome. It's the fact that we have been trained and socialized within the system that has all but ensured that we will become either uh, numb to it or at the at best bystanders. And so when you understand the system that has socialized you, then you could truly understand what it takes to re-socialize ourselves. And really how I feel is reclaim my own humanity as a white person. I have empathy. I want to access my empathy. I want to lean in in relationships. And racism pulls me back from all that and actually doesn't let me be my best human self. So this is really the, the beginning of the conversation that happened fall 2020 and then uh, the next two years have been uh, writing of the book. Talk about the title of the book. So the title is Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People. And this comes from the idea of, first of all, racism is a white person problem. This is a quote I heard from James Baldwin back in college, where he says, you know, racism is not a person of color problem. It's a white person problem, and it's not going to change until white people do something about it. And I remember at the time hearing hearing his quote and thinking, what 
what what am I supposed to do about it? I mean, I, I don't even know anything about it, you know. I, and I was really socialized to be colorblind, not to talk about race, to think racism is someone else's problem. So even when we start to talk about it, I just kind of get red-faced and start stuttering. I mean, I, you know, how am I supposed to do something about it? But to me, it was really an invitation and, I, and there were other black scholars saying similar things, including Toni Morrison saying, "What you know, this is something white people need to deal with. And, um, and for me, it was an invitation to say, this is not something that is going to go away unless you start taking action and you see the role that you play here. And now for me, I grew up in a almost 100% white community in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. And I just thought it was like a raceless community. Because at the time, I thought white like wasn't a race. Like we're we're just normal here or something. We don't we're not we don't have race. I mean that was kind of the general sense. And then when I went to college, it was like no, not only did we have race, but we had predominantly white people. And we I lived in a town that was heavily uh, shaped by systemic racism because all white spaces in a multiracial society like ours don't happen by accident. They happen through intention and through social and public policy, through um, violence, interpersonal violence, systemic violence. And um, and so that for me, that was like a real wake up to start to see, oh, this is my problem. I actually come from a place heavily shaped by systemic racism. How could I not living in the United States? And so the, the next 25 years of my life have been spent figuring out how is this my problem? And then the other thing that um, many black scholars have spoken to is that not just like it's your problem, you should do something about it, but this is your problem. It hurts you too. Racism hurts white people. And if we don't understand, if we as white people, if I as a white person don't understand the ways in which it hurts me, I will not be an effective accomplice or co-conspirator to people of color because I'll be acting out of a charity mindset or a, or a um, like a white savior model. When I act out of a belief that this system also dehumanizes me, um, alienates me from other from people of color and native people. It makes me more manipulable by politicians, which is what we're seeing right now across the country as the anti-CRT campaign manipulates communities into having co- uh, local level conflict. Um, and it really, you know, as Heather McGee wrote in her recent book, The Sum of Us, it also it, it makes us all poorer. I mean, it makes us all materially poorer because. Um, of the way we kind of fight over these small pieces of the pie rather than seeing how we could be better together. And so um, our problem is about seeing racism as a white person problem. Our path is about recognizing that we're not going to solve it in one day. We're going to, the the idea is that we, that anti-racism is a practice. It's a daily practice and it's something that we need to be able to walk over the course of our lives and that white people need to support one another to walk that path because too often we're in competition to be seen as the most anti-racist white person in the room. And so we actually put each other down or I'll call out your racism in order to look good comparatively, you know, because it's like a, as if it's all about my self-image. And, and we're saying, no, really, like if somebody says something racist, don't call them out with the concern that if you don't, you're going to look bad. Think about what is it going to take to take that person the next stop on their anti-racist path, to intervene with them in a way that honors them 
and helps them learn because we need them on this path too. We need millions, like I said, hundreds of millions of people on this path. And then finally, it's collective anti-racism because it's really for white people to learn how to be a part of a white collective that isn't about oppression. That's about that that is like about anti-racism that involves like a culture and practice of anti-racism and community that will be sustaining for an anti-racist practice in the over the long haul. You talked about CRT. Why should, um, why do you feel that in the educational system, it's a lot of push against that? Well, there's this great report that came out of UCLA last winter called the Conflict Campaign that spells out the ways in which um, right-leaning politicians have essentially constructed the anti-CRT campaign for the sake of sowing division at the local community level it was like, I, I think Steve Bannon said something like the way to the white house in 2024 is through local school boards. Essentially it's through conflict at the local level. If we can sow conflict at the local level, um, then people will vote conservative essentially. And if we can make them afraid of things like race, first of all, if we take something that already scares people, like a conversation about race, and we and we make it sound really scary by you know invoking this term critical race theory, which is actually a whole separate field of legal study. Um, but we kind of demonize it, and then we put other things in there like LGBTQ content or trans content or even social emotional learning. We put it all together, um, and we'll terrify people um, and and make them and we'll give them talking points. But I think the thing that we often misunderstand is that there's been inordinate amounts of money spent promoting a very simplistic campaign aimed at sowing conflict. And so and that that kind of preys on people's already existing fears. And this is one of the ways in which racism makes us very manipulable. This is like, oh, yeah, I'd rather not talk about race. So I'm going to jump on board with this campaign instead of, you know, what the African-American Policy Forum says is, is that really like in order to be able to confront this, we have to we have to see the ways that we are a multiracial coalition, that we are a diverse coalition of people, um, that we have to be aligned with all of those communities that are being targeted by the anti-CRT campaign. Um, and then we have to just get up and use our voices, show up at local school board meetings, show up in public places and just assert what we believe in. It doesn't have to be complicated. The anti-CRT campaign is not complicated. Um, they're just saying what they're against. And we have to say, like, I'm pro-history. I'm pro-truth. I'm pro-unity. I'm pro-community. I'm pro-my neighbor. And talk about what we believe in and emphasize the importance of creating community where everybody can show up and be their full self. And that that's essential. And then continuing to lean into our neighbors with love and connection, because that's honestly part of what defeats the campaign that exists to sow conflict. Um, and one thing I, I want to note is that it can be very, like, I don't expect, I mean, if this is happening everywhere where people of color and native people are reaching out to white people who've done and said very racist things and making repair, but I don't expect that to happen. I think white people, that's like where white people need to step in. And sometimes it's, real, it's really hard to reach out in a loving way to a white person who 
has a different political orientation because you kind of want to differentiate yourself from them. Like, I'm not that kind of white person. But in fact, I think that's the strategic role white people can play because it's not fair to leave that work to people of color and Native people. And I would add that um, they chose the topic of critical race theory, which really they sort of misuse as a term, but they really don't want to talk about anything that has to do with inclusivity, basically. And they also targeted social emotional learning. And those are not two random areas. In fact, if you do open people's eyes to the commonalities among all of us and to the richness of having a multicultural society and multiracial uh, social structure and to the creativity that emerges from all that, you are no longer divisive, which is really goes against certain kind of more conservative political agendas. So, and if you make people empathetic, which means that you really do have some degree of emotional and social learning about how to be with each other, how to talk to each other, how to navigate conflict in very productive ways and creative ways, then you're also uh, undoing barriers. So the fact that they took those two special area and topics to go against with children and adolescents as they're forming as human beings, as adults, that will then function a certain way in society is strategic. So it's strategic in multiple levels. And I think that's part of what the book talks about is the fact that you have to have the eyes to see it, the skills to do it, and the community to join each other in the process. Now, what distinguishes this book from other anti-racism books out there? I think that's the key, key question because most books, and I would say I read anti-racist books on a daily because I'm socialized into a racist society on a daily basis. And so I need to re-socialize myself in an anti-racist way on a daily basis. So everything you can get your hands and your eyes on, read it. <laughs> that said, um, I think what our book does that I have, we haven't seen other books doing is combine what we call the external work with the internal work. So the knowledge that you have to be able to even simply recognize racism around you. You know, when I came to the United States in the early 90s, it took me a long time to even see it, to even understand what people were talking about. And if I can't see it, then by, by definition, I'm participating in it. And by definition, I'm not resisting it or transforming it. So you need some degree of knowledge about history, about racial identity, um, about um, what we have been taught in terms of stereotypes of each other. And then once you begin cracking the code, so to speak, the more you see, the more you see. And once you start seeing it, sort of the whole structure unravels because in fact, it's not real. And so once you understand how it's created and all the mechanisms that are used to keep it up, really the house of cards, then it crumbles. And so the more you see, the more you see. You also obviously need good intention you need to have a real open heart to appreciate people's pain and to appreciate the fact that we all have space and a role to play in this world and this lifetime. Um, and that's super important. So what people have done in many, many books give a ton of knowledge and, and, and appeal to people's good intention. And what happens to us as white people as we have all this knowledge and we read all this book and then we get to the intensity of an actually um, on an actual racial conversation or an interaction and we freeze. And then we have a human body who perceives some kind of uh, 
danger in the very process of talking about race and racism, and then it makes us fight, flight, or freeze. And so there we are exhibiting all the right fragile behaviors that, of course, we do over and over again, and they're predictable, they're codified, everybody can tell you about them. Um, and, and so what we do in the internal work of the, in the book, we talk about the very internal mechanisms that are ignited just because we're human as we engage in conversation about race and racism. And once you understand what happens to you physiologically, there are actually very fairly straightforward, simple practices that you can do to hold yourself in that moment, re-engage with your full thinking and empathizing capacities, learn what's presented to you, engage in conversations over time because it's not a once and done, it's not a, usually a five-minute process, and actually take a step forward. So basically, it gives you a step-by-step -step guide of what you can do on the outside in a very practical way, but also what it takes to use those skills, what it takes at the very emotional, psychological level in the micro moments of an interaction to actually use those skills. Because no amount of knowledge, a good intention will bypass and help you um, unfreeze yourself when you get paralyzed in a racial conversation, but many other skills do. And then you can use and implement the beautiful knowledge and intention that you have. So we try to take where a lot of anti-racism books leave off with like, this is, this is racism <laughs> and you, and we need to do something about it, but that's kind of the end. Like now, what are you going to do with that? And we try to say like, here are all the things you can do. Here's how you can talk to other white people. Here's how you can talk to your children. Here's how you were probably socialized. And we found that, you know, when we were trying to figure out how to raise our white kids <laughs> to be anti-racist white people, we found there were a lot of books that like talked about research, but didn't have a lot of suggestions or they had suggestions that we were already doing, like live in a multiracial neighborhood and we, and we, and read them books with multiracial characters. And we just felt like there has to be more. And so we have multiple chapters that try to make the, again, to make the research uh, come alive in terms of personal individual practice for communicating with other white people. So as to build that collective, um, that anti-racist collective among the white people in your life um, and how to do it in a way that, you know, I, I tell the story about my dad who I used to fight with a lot in college over um, things uh, mostly that were race related because he had a very conservative sense of, of racial dynamics. And so I could hear his bias and some of the things, his responses to what I said. And at one point I just said like, that's just racist, you know? <laughs> and then he was like, okay, well, we don't have to talk about this anymore for like five years. You know, he, we, he and I didn't talk about race for a long time. And finally I, I thought, you know, I want to, I want to have this conversation with my dad because this is not going in. I'm on this path. It's not going anywhere for me. And I really deeply love my dad. I want him to be on this path with me. So I said to him, you know, I, I know that was really unfair of me a number of years ago. I called you a racist and that's not the kind of conversation I want to have with you. If you have questions about race and racism, I want to hear them and I want to explore them with you. I don't know if I'll know the answers, but I want to be able to talk about this with you. And it has been so powerful to me over the last 25 years of building that relationship in a, in a collaborative way. I mean, because there's a lot I knew about racism that I learned in college that I could share with him that was eye-opening to him. But there was a lot he knew about sports and about the economy and different history that I didn't know that he would share with me and we'd piece things together to, um, jointly. And then 
Um, what I find is that then I have anti-racist community in my home with my father who actually happens to live with us. Um, but it's like, it's like, it's building the collective also so that the, the white people who are around me are also on this path so that I have some company because it can actually be really lonely for white people who are trying to be anti-racist. I think like the model I learned as a young activist was like alienate yourself from other white people and make other people feel guilty all the time. And nobody taught me that explicitly, but that was kind of like what I thought I was supposed to do. And um, the building community around anti-racism by inviting other white people to walk the path and meeting them wherever they are has meant that I have a life full of white people who are like just really trying to really trying to um, create racial justice in their spheres of influence on the PTO that they're in or the, you know, the restaurant that they run or the school board that they're on. I mean, there's like people from across my, I know a whole lot of white people, believe it or not. <laughs> Most of the people I know are white. And, um, and because, you know, I grew up around all white people and um, it's been really powerful to build relationships with them where they're like, they're trying, they're trying to, to, to make this world different in, in, by using the power that they have. And, um, and so that's, that's part of what we're trying to do here. What is your superpower? <laughs> oh, I love that question. Can I jump in? <laughs> Please. So I would say I'm one of the strange people that loves people. I know a lot of people don't love people. <laughs> And so what happens when you really love people is that you truly see the best potential in them. So I remember early on seeing when, so I, I was born and raised in Italy and I came here in my late teens and I was learning about race and racism and getting socialized into the racial hierarchy in the United States. And I remember looking at, and at the same time, I was also being trained as a psychologist, right? So I have this diagnosis lens in my mind. And I remember looking at a picture of a really horrific um, scene of harm done to African-Americans. And I saw a face of a woman turning towards the camera backwards and smiling. Now, if you look at that picture through a psychological lens, it's very much the sign of an antisocial personality disorder. So you can't have an entire nation, even 50% of the nation, who, you can't have that big of a percentage of antisocial personality disorder. It's not statistically possible. So I thought, well, what's really happening to white people that they somehow feel like this is okay and doable. And so when you look at the best in people, you also understand where people have been derailed, where, have their, where their system hasn't been allowed to develop in ways that then causes significant harm. So I would say my, my superpower perhaps is never giving up on white people, <laughs> always seeing the best of what they're trying to do. Most, most of white supremacy cannot stand on the basis of bad people. It needs good people to abide by it. So it has infiltrated really our values of fairness and of working hard and our meritocracy, the religious mythology, but let's, you know, people believe in it. And so it has co-opted the very values of good people. And so when you try to work with white people who feel that being good, <laughs> but somehow their action turns racist, you can really help them and understand how they can be the good people they want to be. In fact, it is a beautiful book by that title, <laughs> actually. Be the beautiful and good person you want to be um, because they can. 
And so I think part of what the book does is inspires people to see the best in a way that is not bypassing, but is in fact productive and forward moving. Dr. Richards, this is such a generous question. And I, I, I'm struggling with that. I'm like, well, I could tell you lots of superpowers that Eleonora has. Um, she's a healer. She can, you know, the way I, she can, I can go to her with my anxiety about different things, about my, my MS or about some mistake I made. And she, she can talk me through it, help me understand what's going on in my body, help me get focused again, help me continue to be my full self. I mean, it's, she has some amazing superpowers. I think my superpower um, might be storytelling. I love to tell stories. It's something I, I don't even think of myself as a storyteller because I like I want so badly to be a really great storyteller. I feel like I'm an average one, but I think my desire to communicate through story is my my superpower, and 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 maybe also like honest self deprecating story. I mean, I feel like I've 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 shared some success stories on this podcast, but I think that what helps me connect with white people in in this book um, and in the workshops that I lead is that um, I really teach through sharing the mistakes that I've made um, and mistakes that really, again, like, I'm not proud of them, but they come from how I was socialized. They, I'm, of course, I'm going to have bias. If I grew up around all white people, of course, I'm going to make mistakes that are connected to that bias. Of course, I'm going to be missing some of the accurate history of our, of our racialized nation. I mean, there's just, there's so many blanks that I'm working to fill in as a white person. And I try to be really honest about those and then tell stories about sociology and history and education and psychology um, all throughout this book in ways that are are more individual level and relatable so that um, because I think people really learn through stories. I love listening to stories and I love uh, sharing the ones I have. Thank you for that. And Ali, I need to connect with you um, because I need um, someone to pull out my story. So, we'll mm. so. Well, I was wondering what your superpower is, Dr. Richards. Um, you know, I think my superpower is pulling out the stories of others. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. That so feels quite evident. Mm. You know, you talked about mistakes that you made. Talk about a mistake that you made that you want to share with the audience around um, race. Well, one mistake that I made when I was the first year in my graduate program, there was a there was a, an event called the Multicultural Students Orientation, and I thought to myself, "Well, you can't have a multi multicultural students orientation without having some anti racist white people there." <laughs> and so I showed up, and on the board it said student of color orientation, which is different, you know, I mean, so I guess some people would see it as the same thing. Um, but suddenly I thought, this is not a space for me. This is an affinity space that I am crashing. But I didn't want to give the people in the room the impression that I like, couldn't hack it or something. <laughs> I was like, uncomfortable being the only white person there, which I really should have been. Um, and so I stayed. Um, and afterwards, I talked to a person who was in my program about whether I should have been there. And she said, do you want my honest feedback? And I said, yes. And she said, no, you shouldn't have been there. This was an affinity event for students of color and white people should not be there. And um, 
this not this that was a so that was a mistake but that was like a, a whatever people make mistakes but the bigger mistake was that i was so embarrassed by that critical feedback she gave me very nicely very politely that i asked for um that i didn't talk with her for two more years i didn't talk i i was actually two years later in a critical race theory class where we were assigned to the same small group where we started working together again and we discussed that event um, but that way that we um, distance ourselves from people who give us the honest feedback that we want, but that is so painful to see, is part of the paralysis that Eleonora is talking about. And that was the mistake for me, was like um, asking, I mean, I don't think it was a mistake to ask for feedback, but um, that's what we need to be doing with, with one, with, that's what white people need to be doing. Um, but that's why we need each other to help hold ourselves up and like take the feedback and grow from it, but not cut ourselves off from relationships um, because we're so ashamed of ourselves for things that really are like, they're important mistakes, but this was not like a life altering mistake that I made. Um, but the bigger mistake was, um, was the shame that I, I let sh- then uh, shaped that relationship for the next two years. And it also probably shaped a lot of my teaching in those early years as a grad student. I think I felt a lot of guilt and shame as a white person that I then basically inflicted on my students, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that was like my MO, like I feel guilt and shame. So I should make other white people feel guilt and shame. And it was through a lot, you know, through reading, um, black psychologist, Dr. Janet Helms, who says, no, if you feel guilt and shame a lot, you're like on step two of a much longer process. Keep going. You're, you know, you get, you have a ways to go. We're, we're not after guilt and shame here. That's might be part of the process, but really what we're after is healthy multiracial community. So if you're, if that's not the stage you're in, if that's not the person that you are prepared to be right now as a member of healthy multiracial community, you still have work to do. And that's such a beautiful example of how you can have all the knowledge and all the good intention and even say the right thing but if you can't regulate your own internal presence then you won't act in anti-racist ways on the outside because it will stay only at the intellectual level and i'm of course shortcoming ali because she was doing great work already at the time but and my example is similar in that way i remember um early on maybe halfway through my academic career we are part of an multi-racial group of faculty and we were we're gatekeepers for who's going to become counselor and who's not going to become counselor so sometimes we have to dismiss students sometimes we have to redirect students to other professions and this one case was um sort of giving feedback to a student of color and we didn't want to be racist by not giving honest and direct feedback and also we wanted to make sure this person had support as I navigated our program. And at some point in the process, while I was trying to really consciously be as fair and as thoughtful and as facilitating a growth as I could, a colleague of mine was a black woman and we had worked together for about six or seven years at that point, really challenged me saying, you know, I was very disappointed about the lack of consideration for the racial dynamic uh, in the program and with the student. And uh, I really felt let down and alone. And, and the specific conversation was to white faculty and my good friend who was a black faculty. 
And I was so floored. You know, it was exactly consciously what I was trying not to do. And in fact, I thought I did a pretty good job at not doing that because I was so conscious and aware. And for some reason, my defensiveness was so high. I said, well, we, first of all, I am um, very classic, right? I shut down the way she told me, why didn't you tell me before? Why didn't you tell me the other reason? Why didn't you tell me in person? Why didn't you tell me? As if that mattered at all to the feedback. And, you know, we were in a really uh, deep friendship for many years. So we decided to have coffee. And to my dismay, now I will say when I fall, I fall all the way. <laughs> because I will definitely put the foot in my mouth. I don't shy away from saying my opinion. I really want to learn. I really want to understand. And so this is one of the time where I crashed and burned till the end. I mean, I argued for my absolute, um, uh, you know, uh, righteousness in how I handled that situation, completely preventing any form of learning. Now, the two things could coexist. Of course, I was being intentional and I was being thoughtful and I must have not seen something. I was actually offered on a silver platter something that I care for profoundly and would have helped me tremendously in supporting other students of color in the program. So the funny part that, of course, I never forgot about this incidents ever. I've thought about it for years. It has guided my internal process for a long time because my emotional reaction was so uh, beyond um, sort of, you know, it was very profound. And then when a number of years later, this is a really dear friend of mine, a number of years later, uh, she was talking about telling a bit of her story and who was going to be a good ally to her, who had been a good ally to her. And I said, jokingly, like, oh boy, you're going to tell our story, right? And she said, well, yeah, of course you've been great. I'm like, wait, what? You don't remember, <laughs> you know? So when I realized that she didn't even remember about that incident, this is a pivotal key moment in my anti-racist learning. And for her, it was just one of probably the many, many conversations that she had with white people. And I realized also that both we have somehow been able to stay in relationship with each other. Now, of course, I credit her a lot more than myself, given I was the one doing the harm and doing the lack of comprehension. But I also want to say, wow, that was possible. It was possible for us to, to stay in relationship, to continue building good things, to continue growing with each other. We have tag team and, and, and sort of on administrating the program that I was the director for for many years. Um, and uh, I'm proud of us for that. You know, again, maybe more proud of her than myself for it, given she had to work a lot harder. Um, but really, it was, a, it was an interesting learning, it reflecting backwards as well. We want to thank um, our listeners for joining in. And if they have a question for Dr. Allie or Dr. Eleonora, let us know. You know, this question I want to ask, it's regarding um, international. Um, Dr. Eleonora, you said you're from Italy. And this might sound like a really um, um, ignorant question when I say, is there racism in Italy? And what? the reason oh. I'm going to ask that question, I, I have a lot of international guests. And they will say, in America, you guys are so obsessed with race. You talk so much about race. Give us your take on that. First, I want to thank you for the question. It's an absolutely beautiful question that I hope it's asked many, many more times for many reasons. And... Um, it's a complex answer because the history of each country, of course, is very different. 
So the essential dynamics of racism coming from colonialism are, are fairly similar, but the exact way in which it manifests, in the exact way in which countries are formed in their history, and who's invaded whom, and who exploited whom, of course, is pretty different in, in different continents. But the, the way that racism manifested when I was younger was much more of an ethnic tension between North and South. Now, you could think of it as an ethnic tension, but we are, if you think in terms of colorism, there's very different um, looks from Northern Italian to Southern Italians, and also very different history of what part of the country was invaded or, or acculturated into which part of other countries. So the Northern Italy is much more acculturated and been occupied by Northern European countries and Southern Italy much more by Northern African countries. So I would say that even though sometimes racism is disguised as ethnic uh, dynamics, it's really the fundamental, it's, it's some people are thought better to be better than intrinsically better than other people. As when I came to the US, I, as I said, I tend to put the foot in my mouth and ask a lot of questions. And I noticed pretty quickly that there was something really clear, really different about the way that people of color from white people were treated. But, and I've asked questions about many other topics, by the way, because I really knew nothing about American culture, but I realized that in the US, Talking about racism was taboo, was especially taboo for white people. Every question that I asked about race uh, was given the answer of, I must be racist for just asking the question. Um, and so what's really different about Europe and Italy specifically is that political correctness is not even in people's field of vision. And so any level of racism and sexism, which certainly are uh, prevalent throughout Europe and in Italy as well, especially as Italy has become a much more diverse kind of country, it's pretty much overt. So we're very much at the stage of perhaps 30s, 40s, 50s in the United States, more than perhaps the stage we're here with, um, well, actually, maybe since the last four years, we've become much more overt again. But um, but I would say it's, it's not, I haven't seen a terrible amount of public discourse that makes the conversation more nuanced. While I would say in the United States, the conversation has been longer and at least in some circles is more nuanced. And what does psychology have to do with anti-racism? Probably my favorite question ever. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so psychology has to do everything with anti-racism. So we do the work that we do in human bodies and our human bodies love us very, very much. They're designed primarily for survival and they don't actually distinguish very much your feelings being hurt from somebody hurting you physically. And so when we're talking about doing anti-racist work in a context where anti-racism is quite stressful, we have... We have, um, we have to find ways to regulate our emotions and to regulate how our bodies respond to that context. So when we don't take into account what our psychology does with, uh, with the kind of socialization that we are given, then we don't actually, we can actually really learn from the knowledge that we read and we can actually implement 
the, the intentions that we have. So what we hope to do with this book is to really give guidance to the ways in which our mind to some extent tricks us into thinking that certain conversations are more dangerous than they are and find ways through it so that we can actually come to it with our full capacities and with our full uh, learning power. Talk about mental wellness and the work that you're doing. Okay, I'll, I'll start and then Ali will, will jump in. You know, racial stress is real. It's real and profound and it impacts everyone. So, you know, certainly I wouldn't compare the negative impact of racism on a white person and on a person of color, but there is something that doesn't indicate wellness when we, as I said before, when we tolerate a certain level of injustice and harm, it certainly gives us pause as to the mental wellness of the people perpetrating that, that harm. And so I think when we talk about what mental wellness is very different if you're talking about a white person or a person of color. But so I'm going to speak for a white person. There is something that happens to us both physiologically when we are submerged into racial stress and to animosity at all times, that probably is more at the human level. And also it's, it's really problematic when we have a social structure that socializes us to a considerable extent to be antisocial. And um, that is not how we have thrive as a species and certainly not how we thrive as individuals. We have a colleague, Dr. Keisha Bentley Edwards, who's on faculty at Duke Medical School, who says, you know, racial stress is just part of living in a multiracial society. It's going to come up for everybody. And what happens for so many white people is we just try to push it away. We don't have skills for dealing with it or even seeing it as what it is. And that's why the anti-CRT campaign is successful. And, um, and yet, to be a successful professional in our society... We have to be able to navigate racial stress. That, and just like we have to be able to navigate any kind of interpersonal conflict or, um, you know, gender, gender, cross-gender interaction. I mean, we like there's so many things that we have to be able to do in order to just be functional in a in a, in a multicultural workplace. And um, and navigating racial stress is by and large something that we are that white people are not taught. We don't have skills for doing. And so um, part of the wellness for white people is about recognizing we live in a multiracial society. This is not something to panic about. It's not something to be scared of, but that there are, it's actually a skills-based competency. Dr. Howard Stevenson, who's at Penn says, this is a skills-based competency that anybody can learn. And the reason people of color tend to have it is because they have to learn how to navigate racial stress in order to survive and help their children survive in this society. White people, by and large, don't have the skills for navigating racial stress because our survival doesn't depend on it. But that does not mean that we can't learn it. What are you, what, what should parents, if you have a white parent that's raising multiracial children, what advice would you give them? That's a great question. And um, it's so, it's so important. I, you know, I think that so often when white people, I mean, white people grow up, like I said, not having to talk about race and racism. And when white people adopt 
uh, multiracial children or children from other racial groups, um, we often, I mean, there's a range of reasons why that adoption happens. Um, and we have a range and white people have a range of racial competencies, you know, so the, the, um, association of black social workers in the 1970s said, essentially it's unethical. Transracial adoption is unethical. We don't want white families adopting black children. And they've since changed that stance. But there's the sense that to, to, to raise a, specifically a black child in the United States, there are very specific um, skills that they have to learn in order to be able to survive and also in order to love themselves in the midst of an, the anti-black culture that, um, that the U.S. has. And, um, and that that's something white people need to learn. I think there's way more resources now for white people to learn that. Um, but I think sometimes that process begins um, when children are, when people have uh, children of color or black children um, and they suddenly realize, oh, wait a second, this isn't, it's, I, I mean, I think the thing that, that one of the stages that white, all white people have to grow, grow through regardless of the race of their children is the stage of realizing, Oh, it's not just a superficial color difference. I was taught that we're all the same under the skin. Of course we are all the same under the skin. We know race is a social construction, but it's a very powerful social construction. My child is going to experience racism, which is something I know very little about. And one of the things that racial socialization scholars say is that race that um, racial socialization is caught, not taught. It's what we model for our kids as we move through the world. It's like what we do with our eyes in certain interactions and and who we defer to in certain spaces and how we even name our elders. And some of that is just about culture and respect, and some of it is really about um, protection. And so. Um, I think that the, the biggest thing is to first not be colorblind, to leave colorblindness behind, not in the interest of like, you know, being racially prejudiced and treating people differently based on the color of their skin, but in the interest of recognizing that race has real significance, that your whiteness has significance, your child's racial background has significance, that it's going to shape their experience of the world, that racism is going to be something they need to contend with is one of many things you need to teach them about and how to navigate and that they're going to need um, also a lot of skills for a, a lot of, a lot of role models and affirmation um, that's not going to come naturally from our society. Um, and the, all of that, like, again, these are skills that you can build, but you have to recognize early on, maybe even, I mean, ideally before you adopt children um, that, that, um, if you were raised to be colorblind and you believe that race doesn't matter, um, that you're not yet, you're not yet prepared to, to, um, be a parent of a child who, uh, is multiracial or has a racial background other than white. And arguably if you have a white child, you also need these competencies because we all need to be teaching them. What is the biggest takeaway from our conversation today that you want the audience to know? I would say 
that first, you absolutely can learn to walk an anti-racist path, and two, that you can only learn it by walking it. And so there is no such a thing as sort of spending years preparing for it, and then at some point in the distant future, operationalizing it. It's you walk it whether you want or not. You walk a racialized society every day, and every day you can do better at walking an anti-racist path while you're learning um, to receive feedback and to operationalize your knowledge and intention better. In the words of Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, I would say I'm uh, pro-unity and pro-truth, and I want to hear the realities of people of color and Native people. I want to hear what they've been through. I want to learn the history. I want them to be able to tell me when I am being oppressive or when I'm acting out of a sense of internalized dominance or when I'm silencing them. I want to hear all of it. And some days I'm not going to be strong enough to hear it the way that people tell me. And so I need colleagues like Eleonora, like other white people who can support me and buffer me to hear it. I want people of color and native people to be able to share their reality in whatever way makes sense for them so that I can hear it and, and, and I can take it in. Um, and I want, I need to have other white people help me do the internal work that makes me, uh, ready to hear it and, and ready to be able to show up and not go, not go freeze and paralyze, get paralyzed for two years. Um, but really be able to hear it and remain in empathetic connection um, with the with the folks who are telling me how racism impacts them so that we can collectively together as a multiracial whole work for a society that we're all dreaming about. If you conducted this interview, what is the one question you would have asked yourself? I want you to ask the question and answer it. Okay, the most horrifying question I can imagine, <laughs> I guess I wouldn't ask it if I was leading it, but is, um, like, is it really okay for white people to make money doing anti-racism? That's like the, ter- the terrifying question I have. I think it's a really important question, and I wish more people would ask it because I'd love to answer it more. And um, I, you know, when I was first starting out on this path as a career at, at the end of graduate school, I was working at Freedom Summer in in Tennessee. And um, I was talking to a woman who spent her life, she was a black woman who spent her life um, working and doing this like one woman show about um, Harriet Tubman. We were both there leading workshops. And um, I said, you know, I just really don't know if I can like do this as a career. I I don't, it doesn't make sense to me that I could make money doing anti-racism. And she said, you know what? I think if you don't do that, then you're going to just like do this as a volunteer thing that you do like in the summers or after work. And when you have kids, it's going to fall by the wayside. And either way, your work's going to, you're not going to do it well. You need to be able to make this your full-time thing. And that means you do need to be able to make some money so that you can get good at it and so that you can do it for your whole life. And so those words have really stuck with me and there's still con- an ongoing ethical questions about um, making sure that I'm giving away a certain percentage of the money that I make to particularly to black run organizations that support black communities. Um, or that's my choice. I mean, I suppose there's lots of places where I could give money. Um, but there's a lot of people in this country, a lot of white people making money off of racism. 
And I think there should be more white people engaged in a full-time pursuit of anti-racism collectively in anti, uh, in, excuse me, in, in accountable relationships with people of color and Native people. Um, and the work that I do really, um, I do very little work that does not have an accountability partner who's a person of color or a Native person. And I think that's a really important aspect of it. Um, but I also do make money um, so that I can live while I do this full time. And I think that um, I, you know, I, I kind of believe that that is for me more important um, than like if like I were making I could make money, I don't know, selling real estate and, and you know, which is not a necessarily bad thing to do, but there are plenty of racist ways to do any kind of job. Um, and I feel really, uh, really grateful and really, um, uh, I feel like that advice that the woman gave me that day has been important in my life because it has meant, um, that I, I continuously check in and make sure that I'm making money in an ethical and accountable way. But it also means that, um, I recognize that there is value in um, really committing to a path uh, that is going to take you deep and wide and, uh, and to understand anti-racism in the nuanced way that I'm able to today because I've spent 25 years um, practicing it. And I will start by saying that your question was so spectacular. I'm going to think about it for a long time, how, how else I could have answered it better. Um, but one question that I think I asked myself on and off out of my own sort of um, sometimes distressing walk in the path is how long will it take and how do, I not, how do I know if I'm doing it right? So how long will it take to get to a healthy multiracial society? And how do I know if I'm doing it right? Am I really helping? And so what's so critical for those of us, so first of all, it's going to be a multi-generation process. I think it's uh, Resma Menekin who says it will take about eight generations of concert effort. So first of all, we are only here because folks before us did tremendous amount of work. And it took many, many, many drops to form that river that brought us to today. And so each one of us has to truly, truly trust that the drop that we have to contribute will form the river that will pass from generation to generation and will ultimately get us there so don't get stuck on do i see the fruits of my actions it's almost irrelevant <laughs> you will you know keep going trust that what you have to offer will be cumulatively and enriching together with what everybody else is offering and stay the course and there are a million ways in my own life where I feel like walking the path and other people having been um, really in a loving relationship with me through this very process have healed me and redefined me. So it has mattered tremendously to me, whether they know it or not. And so I have faith that what you have to do has tremendous impact on individuals and across generation will actually make a difference. So, um, yeah, that's what I would encourage people to do. We want to again thank the audience for um, joining us. And if anyone had a question for Dr. Ali or Dr. Eleonora, please let us know. We're going to jump in the segment. It's called Rapid Round of Fun. And I'm going to ask you a series of questions. And I want you to give me very quick answers. If there's something you desire not to answer, feel free to say pass. 
Are you ready for the rapid round of fun? Ready. Yes. Your ideal car? Uh, Saturn. Stick shift. (laughs) Oh, stick shift. I'll take that. Yes, for sure. Your first job? Lifeguard. Research assistant. Your favorite color? Black. Green. Your favorite holiday? Passover. Rosh Hashanah. The last movie you saw? Hmm. (laughs) I saw a movie uh, called Disruptor. It's a documentary about ADHD. It's a quite powerful, well-done movie. Oh, I watched a movie called Crip Camp, which is a, a history of the civil rights civil rights movement for people with disabilities. I think that I think that was a year ago. I don't think I've watched another movie since then. It's been a year, but I did watch Bridgerton, among other um, um, other sitcoms, but no movies. You relax doing what? Backpacking, hanging out with my kids. Your favorite singer or rapper? Cat Stevens. Oh my, I'll pass. This is my total uh, inability to have pop cultural knowledge. (laughs) Your favorite dance song? Oh, yes. Any song. I will dance to anything. Elliot? Eleanor said, oh, I will, I will survive. I think it's been a, a big one for me lately. Okay. What food do you eat every week, no matter what? Chicken. Oh, I eat, I eat all foods. Um, yogurt. Workout or hit the couch? Workout. I have MS, so I have to work out every day to maintain strength. Workout, my joy. Dr. Allie, Dr. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us on Black Entrepreneur Experience Live. Before we let you go, share with the audience the best way for them to connect with you. Feel free to leave all your social media handles and tell them how they could purchase the book. Oh, wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Richards. So um, people can find the book at bookshop.org. It's called Our Problem, Our Path. Collective Anti-Racism for White People. You can find our information at, I'm at AllieMichael.org. Eleanor is at DrEleanoraBartoli.com. Is it DrEleanoraBartoli.com or Eleanor You can reach both, DrEleanoraBartoli or EleanoraBartoli.com. It's, it's either way will get to me. And my website has all the social media handles right there. Our book is also available at Corwin.com. Thank you, Dr. Ellie and Dr. Eleonora. That is a wrap. Thank you, Dr. Richards. What a joy. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you so much for having us. You're welcome. Take care and stay well. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye.